The impotent pool noodle slapping continues. That's right. Last week we looked at how Paul Tillich wants to deny various apologetic arguments in favor of his ontological gooberism. Mr. Tillich is a hyper-existentialist who loves asking questions about being and essence and the ground of being. And just like how if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, if you have a pool noodle called, wow, I can ask ontological questions, everything looks invalid. Yes, let us continue in this, as last week we saw him pathetically, weakly attack the ontological argument, classically stated, and the moral argument for the existence of God. And it became evident that he doesn't think about things too deeply. Let's see how he continues regarding the quote-unquote so-called cosmological arguments. The question of God can be asked because there is an unconditional element in the very act of asking any question. The question of God must be asked because the threat of non-being, which man experiences as anxiety, drives him to the question of being conquering non-being and of courage conquering anxiety. This question is the cosmological question of God. See, he starts by stacking the deck. The quote-unquote cosmological question, what he means by that is arguments that start with creation and go towards God. The teleological argument looks at the way creation is made and says, this cannot happen by random chance, and nor can it happen by some other worldview than theism. This is where you get the famous watchmaker argument, where people will take a look at, say, a single-celled organism propelling itself by these flagella tentacle-type things, or the complexity of DNA, and say flatly, there's no way this just came about by random chance. The teleological argument has been vindicated lately by the complexity of DNA. Without DNA, you don't really have life. Without RNA, you don't have life. These things just don't happen in a state of nature that has no life. Period. If all you have is rocks and lava and gases and maybe sunshine and the cold winds of an uncaring material, well, you're not going to get DNA out of it. It doesn't matter how much time you have. It doesn't matter how much quote-unquote chaos or emergent order tries to fix that. DNA relies on biological materials and is coded with information. Even when they have supposedly made RNA in a lab or demonstrated that, oh, this happened without any biological matter preceding it, it's always with humans forcing the hand of nature. In other words, demonstrating that it requires an intelligent designer to help these processes along. Hmm. Yes, 
it turns out the teleological argument is valid. Because if you have the quote-unquote appearance of design, eventually you have design. And the uh, gardener argument, the invisible gardener argument that guys like Antony Flew had, relies on logical positivism, which has been uh, debunked now for about 70 years. The parable of the gardener goes like this. A Christian and his atheist friend, they go to a place in the middle of the woods on a hike and they find a beautiful garden that's all tended. It looks very nice. There's beautiful stepping stones there. It looks like there's some sort of natural fountain. Everything is neatly organized, plant by plant, in equal one-foot spacing. Now the Christian says to his atheist friend, Wow, this is a beautiful garden. There must be a gardener. And the atheist, for some reason, says, No, no, there isn't a gardener here. I doubt it. So they wait. And they wait to see if the gardener shows up to water the plants. And this keeps going. They keep waiting, and no gardener shows up. Then the Christian says, Well, let's set up some cameras or something, and some motion detection devices to see if a gardener shows up when we go home. And over the course of about a month or two, this just doesn't happen, and the Christian friend says, well, I don't know, maybe the gardener is invisible, and the atheist, ever wise, says, <laughs> what's the difference between your gardener and no gardener at all? Well, okay, what's the problem with that parable? It stacks the deck by assuming the verification principle, or logical positivism. Logical positivism, or the verification principle, says that no statement, whether metaphysical or otherwise, is valid or has any claim to truth unless a. it is tautologically true, or b. it is demonstrable by our physical senses. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is that if the verification principle is true, it does not live up to its own argument. The verification principle is not tautologically true, it cannot be, and you also cannot demonstrate its truth with your five senses. Nor can you just say that it's true or see it in nature. That's a problem. The verification principle is an illogical assumption. If the gardener happens to be divine, he doesn't have to play by our rules of empiric sensibility or what we can touch, taste, see, hear, and feel. That said, the teleological argument has made a massive roaring comeback in the past few decades, despite Paul Tillich getting a little bit of a, a vein bursting in his head over it. We'll get to that. The other cosmological argument for God is the cosmological argument. While the teleological argument looks at the micro, at the small things, at the demonstration of order and design in the universe, the cosmological argument, properly stated, looks at the universe itself. It's related to ontology because the cosmological argument says something is here. If something wasn't here, we would not be here having this discussion. Something must have caused here. Something must have caused the universe and everything that exists to exist. 
if that wasn't the case, if instead we have an eternal steady state universe or oscillating big bangs or whatever, we devolve into, well, illogical things, things that cannot be true. For instance, if the universe has always existed forever back in time, then actual infinite is true. So let's say there have been two clocks. You could substitute this for atoms or electrons spinning around a nucleus. Let's say, though, that for the argument, there's two eternal clocks. One of them spins twice as fast as the other. The little minute hand goes around the entirety of the clock face twice every hour. The other clock only goes around once. If you get to the actual infinite back in time, you have one infinite, that is the first clock going once around every hour, and then you have two infinite, the other clock going around twice every hour. Okay, well both of them have gone around infinity times, except one has gone twice as much. So one infinity equals two infinity, do your math here, divide both by infinity, and you have 1 equals 2, which is a contradiction. You cannot have an eternal universe. It must be both contingent on something else, and it cannot exist forever. Therefore, the universe, all of creation as we would state it, must have a cause. An uncaused cause. There must be a ground by which everything springs. Until it pays a tiny little bit of lip service to this later when he calls God the ground of all being, but he doesn't mean the same thing. The cosmological argument, what I gave is called the Kalam formulation, or the Kalam cosmological argument, which says this uncaused cause must be intelligent. Otherwise, you don't have an intelligible universe must be righteous or else morals would not exist. We would not have any sense of morals. Remember, moral values don't come out of a pile of dirt. And this being, this uh, God, we will call him, must have caused the universe to exist, making him all-powerful. If you can create a universe, you can do just about anything else. That's the cosmological argument, and ever since the Big Bang was discovered, I would say that also has been vindicated. If you know about the Big Bang, and if you know about the laws of entropy, you have a universe that came into existence starting with light, reminding us of let there be light, and it is winding down. If it is winding down, that means at some point it was winding up. Okay. The cosmological argument, in a very valid sense, demonstrates the existence of God. Especially because most astrophysicists and most cosmologists won't tell you what was around before the Big Bang. I guess nothing was there, but they'll just say something came out of nothing for no reason whatsoever and you're supposed to believe that atheism is actually the rational argument here <laughs> no thanks i will say that the cosmological argument is very 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 valid 
both in the Kalam formulation and Thomas Aquinas's weird uh, contingency-based argument, which I can address at a different time. How does Paul Tillich try to attack these two arguments with his pool noodle? Let's go ahead and read. The so-called cosmological and teleological arguments for the existence of God are the traditional and inadequate form of this question. Now, again, by question, what he means is the cosmological question of God is us having anxiety over the potential to be non-being and having the courage to be, I guess, conquering that anxiety. No, that is never ever stated in either of these arguments, but he inserts it and expects you to say, ah, yes, so deep. In all their variations, these arguments move from special characteristics of the world to the existence of the highest being. You know, ground up. The ontological argument starts top down, cosmological arguments go bottom to top. They are valid insofar as they give us an analysis of reality which indicates that the cosmological question of God is unavoidable. They are not valid insofar as they claim that the existence of a highest being is the logical conclusion of their analysis, which is as impossible logically as it is impossible existentially to derive courage from anxiety. Now, by anxiety, Mr. Tillich is referring to a Heideggerian theory of angst. The threat of non-being is ever-present in us, and therefore we are full of anxiety and always having to wrestle with that. Why do people eat food? Because, well, otherwise they're going to die. It is an ever-present reality, I guess. Now, how does this apply to the cosmological and teleological arguments for God? It doesn't. Nowhere do any of the great apologists for the faith ever say, Wow, I'm so scared of not existing anymore. Therefore, I'm going to create the cosmological argument to make me feel better. This is an act of courage to move in spite of the threat of non-being. None of them say that. They are all a bunch of Christians, and in the case of Kalam, it was Avicenna and the Islamic theologians doing this. All of them are saying, well, God exists, we already believe that, but we should understand that if he exists, we should be able to find the evidence of his existence in nature. Something's got to point to him. He would not leave the mass of humanity that didn't receive special revelation with nothing, right? After all, the scriptures say the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, let's find out how. Oh, wow. Cosmological and teleological arguments. This is awesome. God has revealed himself. Praise the Lord. But Tillich says, no, that doesn't work because I can ask ontological questions. Let's take a look. The cosmological method for ar arguing for the existence of God has taken two main paths. It has moved from the finitude of being to an infinite being, 
the cosmological argument in the narrower sense, and it has moved from the finitude of meaning to a bearer of infinite meaning, the teleological argument in the traditional sense. In both cases, the cosmological question comes out of the element of non-being in beings and meanings. No question of God would arise if there were if there were no logical and new logical, relating to meaning, threat of non-being, for then being would be safe. Religiously speaking, God would be present in it. What on earth is Tillich saying? He is saying that by saying something exists and that there is an explanation for its existence, whether in the fact of its existence, cosmological, or the nature of its existence, teleological, you're talking about finite things. If you're a scholastic, the proper word to use here is contingent, but Tillich likes using Heideggerian terms, not scholastic ones. So if they're contingent, if they're finite, then they automatically have the threat of non-being. And so Paul Tillich is first attacking these by saying, well, if you didn't have the threat of non-being, you wouldn't even be thinking about this. So your arguments would never have been formulated. How does God even come into the question if there's no threat of non-being? Huh? Which is a complete non sequitur, and nor does he demonstrate that. If we had no threat of non-being, if our existence was totally immortal, you know, you're born and then you just exist forever, we would probably still ask, hey... How did we get here? Let's find out about God. Tillich is just saying something and pretending that that cuts off the motivation for the cosmological argument off at the knees. But don't worry, my friends. He does try to address the cosmological argument and claim that it is invalid from a logical sense. Let's see how. From the endless chain of causes and effects, the cosmological argument arrives at the conclusion that there is a first cause. And from the contingency of all substances, it concludes that there is a necessary substance. But cause and substance are categories of fi finitude. The first cause is a hypostasized question not a statement about a being which initiates the causal chain. Such a being would itself be a part of the causal chain, and would again raise the question of cause. In the same way, a necessary substance is a hypostasized question, not a statement about a being which gives substantiality to all substances. Such a being would itself be a substance with accidents, and would again open the question of substantiality itself. When used as material for arguments, both categories lose their categorical character. A first cause and necessary substance are symbols which express the question implied in finite being, the question of that which transcends finitude and categories, the question of being itself embracing and conquering non-being, the question of God. 
So he's already stacked the deck by claiming that there's this ontological angst behind everything. And therefore, I can just say things about the cosmological argument that aren't formulated. I'm going to read into the conscience and psychology of the various apologists out of history and say that therefore their argument is invalid. Thus, again, he weakly slaps an argument with his pool noodle and nothing happens. Why? Well, his attempt at logically refuting the cosmological argument claims that there must be a necessary substance. Note that he doesn't say essence, he says substance. An essence, a being that is the uncaused cause, does not have to follow the rules of material. But if he says it's a substance, then it is a thing that exists, and if it's a thing that exists, then there's a question as to whether or not it could not exist, therefore going back to the infinite regress of ontological questions Tillich would like to ask. However, the cosmological argument has already addressed this for about a thousand years. This uncaused cause does not have to play by the rules of matter. Ontological questions may make humanity realize his quote-unquote finitude or his contingency, but such does not apply to God, who by definition, thank you ontological argument, must exist, must have that. There is no threat of non-being in God. Tillich has these problems with definitions because he likes to make his own definitions for things and then deny that the others have any validity. The problem with that is that when you look at the history of theology, we have some definitions for God, or at least some boundaries for how we think about God, that are so logically rock-solid you can't get away from them. But Tillich chooses to ignore that. For instance, going back to the ontological argument, the modal formation of that has proven, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if a theistic God exists, he must exist necessarily. So when the cosmological argument points to the uncaused cause, he therefore exists necessarily as the uncaused cause as the infinite creator of all contingent things, that is, everything that is not himself. So he would have to be a necessary being, not a necessary substance. If he was a substance rather than an essence, then what Paul Tillich is saying might have some validity. But he wants to ignore definitions because otherwise he can't just slap something with his little pool noodle and declare victory. Now regarding the teleological argument, let's see what he has to say. The basis for the so-called teleological argument for the existence of God is the threat against the finite structure of being, that is, against the unity of its polar elements. The telos, from which this argument has received its name, is the inner aim, the meaningful, understandable structure of reality. This structure is used as a springboard to the conclusion that finite teloi imply an infinite cause of teleology. 
that finite and threatened meanings imply an infinite and unthreatened cause of meaning. In terms of logical argument, this conclusion is as, as invalid as the other cosmological quote-unquote arguments. You see what he's doing? He's doing it again. He's definition bluffing. He puts together a formulation of an argument that he doesn't agree with, stated in terms that function as a scarecrow for him to chop down. He's not actually arguing against the teleological argument. He's arguing against a Heideggerian mockery of it so that he can strike it with his pool noodle. The teleological argument does not rely on threats to structure. The teleological argument relies on demonstrated purpose and actual effective existence. If a dog has legs and a dog walks on its legs, then its legs do serve at least one purpose, that of walking. That is a demonstrated telos of dog legs. And if someone wants to say, oh, you're drawing a conclusion from empirical evidence to say that there's a purpose for something that you see when that doesn't demonstrate what it actually is, well, go watch a dog walk. It's pretty common sense. The teleological argument has an element of common sense in it, no big deal. But with his habit of definition bluffing, Mr. Tillich is positing that the formulators of the teleological argument were like, oh my gosh, I have a hand, and it grips stuff. I could close it into a fist. What if I couldn't? Then I couldn't say that fist closing was the meaning behind my hand. I'd be lost in a meaningless, chaotic universe. I'd better formulate an argument to demonstrate a being with infinite meaning that makes sure that my hand is for fist closing. Tillich presents invalid formulations or invalid definitions in order to cut those down and say, wow, I'm so right, you know, you'd better just rely on what I say about God rather than what all these other guys have said about him. It's dishonesty. Or at the very least, if he didn't mean to be dishonest, it's because he's looking at these arguments from a philosophical lens that didn't show up until Heidegger, until the later existentialists. He's using their understanding of things that, for the most part, they just made up, so that he can impose it on these other arguments for the existence of God and claim that they're invalid according to his arbitrary philosophical system. In other words, he's saying nothing. Nothing at all. But maybe, let's see if he makes a point regarding the teleological argument, shall we? Anxiety about meaninglessness is the characteristically human form of ontological anxiety. It is the form of anxiety which only a being can have in whose nature freedom and destiny are united. The threat of losing this unity drives man toward the question of an infinite, unthreatened ground of meaning. It drives him to the question of God. The teleological argument formulates the question of the ground of meaning just as the cosmological argument formulates the question of the ground of being. 
In contrast to the ontological argument, however, both are in the larger sense cosmological and stand over against it. Oh, uh, my bad, guys. I know that I said Paul Tillich was using definition bluffing in order to get his way, in order to set up a scarecrow, knock it down, and declare victory, uh, the same way that for arguments he can't argue against, uh, he just asks ontological questions hoping that it will go away. That's what I thought he was going to keep doing, but instead he just doesn't address the points of the teleological argument. He just says, nuh-uh, and then he prosecutes its motive, saying, yeah, what you're doing here, pal, you're doing it because you're so anxious that if you didn't have meaning in the universe, there would, like, be no meaning, and that threatens your being or something. He just sidesteps it. Some intellectual, some great doctor of theology Mr. Tillich is, that he can't even discuss apologetic arguments without either just declaring victory, lying, uh, mischaracterizing stuff, or ignoring it. Great. And this all stems from him imposing his philosophical views on everything and thinking that this gives him permission to just ignore the points people make or deal with them in a fundamentally dishonest way. How much do you want to bet this is how he's going to approach God himself? Oh, you don't have to bet. If you were to bet that he wouldn't, you would lose a lot of money, because we're going to start covering how he defines God next week. Oh boy, can't wait for that. That's going to be fun. Or angering. Maybe both. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.